Marco, welcome to the podcast, The Big Red Wave, companion podcast to TheBigRedWave.com, the Internet's home for patriots. Neither of the Wave's founders, Pat or Adam, are available today, so I'll be joined by my good friend and fellow patriot and voice of Quorum Radio, Mr. Bill McIntosh. Let's give Bill a big red wave warm welcome. Bill brings years of experience as a journalist and relentless, unapologetic patriot and conservative. Today is generously agreed to take the time to join us for this episode. In fact, Bill's producing the second part of this episode, graciously sharing his exclusive interview with Rick Gates and others. Rick Gates, of course, from the President Trump's 2016 campaign, a controversial figure to say the least, but Bill has some great, uh, great stuff to share with us. I'm sure you'll enjoy. Bill can be found usually hanging his hat at his YouTube channel, Forum Radio, that's Q-U-O. R-U-M Radio, where he regularly publishes fascinating, compelling interviews and exposés. Be sure to take a look at that. Quorum Radio. Where else can we find you, Bill? Besides that, um, Ocaso Media O-C-A-S-O-Media.com. Uh, uh, O-C-A-S-O -media .com. One thing, a clarification. Technically, my YouTube channel is Best Book Network. Best Book Network. That's right, Best Book Network. And uh, you can find it there. I also am publisher of an editor of The Dirty Locked Away History of the Democrat Party. The Dirty Locked Away History of the Democrat Party. And um, that's a fascinating read. Uh, Kevin Collins wrote that book, and I edited it, and I published it in 2016. It actually beat Hillary Clinton during the campaign. That's a funny side story, but yeah. So that's that's where you can find me. Cool. And now that that uh, best book network. That's your YouTube channel, or uh, yes, that's that right. It, it it actually it actually is, and I don't know how easy it is to find. Quorum Radio will probably be easier when you put in when you Google Quorum Radio now. I've posted enough stuff so that it's relatively easy to find. If you go to YouTube, it should be very easy to find if you put in Quorum Radio, because I have now about, oh, 30 videos. So I've seen a lot of them, and I, uh, I urge our listeners to take a look at that. It's some really enlightening stuff. But, but anyway, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, who, uh, who you're interviewing on the, in the second segment tonight? Sure, gladly. Um, okay, I interviewed Rick Gates, former Trump campaign 2016 deputy campaign chairman, who's the author of the recently published Wicked Game, an insider story of how tr Trump won, Mueller failed, and America lost. And also, a guy who goes by the name of Dr. Chaps, his real name is Gordon Klingenschmidt, Gordon Klingenschmidt, which is easy for him to say and easy for him to spell. And his book is a great grassroots book called How to Liberate the World a step-by-step -step guide to take back your country. He's somebody who's a grassroots activist par excellence. He won a election in a very liberal state, which is Colorado, to the state, um, their state the House of Representatives. And uh, yeah, so he's a fantastically uh, practical, insightful man, Rick Gates and uh, Gordon Klingenschmidt. Looking forward to hearing this. Well, to make room for it, so uh, for time, uh, 
constraints, I think we will just go right to that second segment there. After the break, Bill McIntosh, Rick Gates, and... Rick Gates and Gordon Klingenschmidt. Okay. You heard Bill. When we come back, uh, we'll roll that tape. Quorum Radio, baby. You're listening to Quorum Radio on WRMI. Quorum Radio, we're on now with Rick Gates, um, who rose through the 2016 Trump campaign, finally becoming deputy campaign chairman. He was also on the president-elect's inaugural committee and co-founder of the America First Policy Super PAC for President Trump. He's the author of a recently released book, Wicked Game, an insider story on how Trump won, Mueller failed, and America lost. That's Wicked Game, an insider story on how Trump won, Mueller failed, and America lost. And he's also working with 20 Days to Save the USA concerning the presidential campaign, 2020. Uh, And heard at that conference um, the other day, you stated that what has happened between uh, Joe Biden and his son Hunter that's been disclosed to the New York Post constitutes an October surprise. Um, why is this so significant in terms of the election right now? And, and by the way, can this be considered equivalent to what happened at the end of October 2016 when Hillary Clinton uh, it was discovered had thousands of emails on Huma Abedin's uh, personal computer that was in the possession of Anthony Weiner being investigated by the FBI? Is that similar? And how significant is this development? Thanks very much for having me. And uh, yeah, we're drawing a lot of parallels between 2016 and uh, what we're going through today. Uh, and, and obviously, there's been much talk about October surprises. Uh, and there may have been a few. But I think the most uh, interesting one for the moment is the uh, Hunter Biden scandal involving Joe Biden, um, where allegedly Joe helped his son Hunter Uh, obtain board seats uh, and lucrative contracts in multiple countries, including Russia, Ukraine, and China. And uh, obviously, it's raised a lot of questions, um, both from a campaign perspective and Biden's role as, at the time, sitting vice president while he was helping his son uh, garner these opportunities. And it raises a, a significant concern from a national security point of view and whether or not Joe Biden uh, is and will be compromised uh, if he were to win, and whether a lot of the information that is alleged to be uh, in these emails is going to tie him to individuals in some of these governments. Uh, and that's, a, that's obviously a very critical consideration. I mean, look, in, in 2016, 2017, when the uh, Russian election interference started, I mean, our, our names were dragged through the mud. We uh, had dossiers and, and narratives uh, that had not even been validated or vetted, uh, disinformation of all sorts. Um, so I find it very you know, interesting that all of a sudden the media has decided to a large extent not to cover the Biden scandal because they don't believe that the information might be accurate even though, and this is very important, Bill, we, uh, we have not heard any denials from any of the Bidens that the computer was not Hunter's, that the emails on the computer were not authentic, the pictures were not authentic. So if, if, if this was all a disinformation campaign, then the Bidens could simply come out and say, hey, this is not our material, this is not our stuff. 
But I think in reality, what they know is that it is, and we're going to find out very shortly. Um, so I think it raises a lot more questions, and I think a lot more information is going to be coming out over the next uh, several days uh, that make the American people see. The only tragedy in this is that I think there's some people that have already voted uh, possibly for you know, Joe Biden, and, and maybe they regret that now based on what they're hearing in the media. Yeah. Now, why is it that the Ukraine keeps on coming up again and again and again in presidential impeachment? Uh, we saw, you know, cases, so, so many cases where um, there was a lot of intrigue involved and a, a tremendous amount of cash. It seems like a gigantic slush fund for all sorts of activities that become relevant politically in America. Comment on that, please. Right. I had the opportunity. I spent about 10 years in Ukraine uh, and involved in Ukrainian politics. And, you know, I can tell you that the energy sector is really small in terms of how it's controlled, who has influence over it from a government point of view. And uh, this is not surprising at all. What, what uh, is concerning is the vice president took, uh, Vice President Biden at the time took six trips to Ukraine. Three of those trips occurred in 2014. One trip occurred immediately after Hunter Biden was put on the board of Burisma, which is a Ukrainian oil company. Now, the other interesting part of this is that, you know, usually when you talk about foreign policy, when you talk about individual countries and their portfolios, those are usually handled by the State Department and then obviously the president. In this case, the portfolio of Ukraine was specifically handed over to Joe Biden as vice president. And that raises a lot of questions. Why was he interested in Ukraine? Why did he want the portfolio? Why did he take six trips? It's, I think, uh, more than any other pres vice president has ever taken, you know, as an American vice president uh, to any Eastern European country other than Russia. <clears throat> but this is very concerning, Bill. So I think as this information continues to come out, we're going to learn a lot more. Um, but, you know, looking on the face of it, uh, there's, there's just other layers there, and there are other people involved that I think you're going to see coming out, both um, you know, sp specifically in Ukraine, but also uh, here within uh, uh, Hunter's company as well. Yeah, it could be that, that possibly the Trump's enemies, and there are many in the government, um, they saw that his, um, let's say, um, concern about the Ukraine and Joe Biden's involvement with past dealings with the Ukrainian government and with the energy sector, could it be that they, they sensed that maybe he was over the target and they reacted? Well, sure. Look, at any point where you have a family member, I mean, you're a sitting <coughs> vice president, you're an uh, elected official by the American people. Uh, and this is not just through the case of Joe Biden, but any uh, family member that benefits from that uh, position of power uh, has to be questioned. I mean, it, it, they have to be transparent. And I think this is where... You know, from the Biden's perspective, if they were just transparent about this, if they were to get up and say, look, this is what happened, or if there's additional information they can share. But the only information we've gotten so far from uh, Joe Biden is in reference to an individual. Uh, one of the emails that was disclosed is that Hunter had arranged for his father to meet with a executive of the Burisma Oil Company here in the United States. And after that meeting, the individual wrote an email back to Hunter, which is one of the emails that has surfaced. So there's clear proof, uh, at least in this, in this instance, that the meeting took place. Now, the Biden camp has said, well, that wasn't on his official schedule. If you know anything about political schedules, there are lots of things that aren't on his, uh, his, his daily schedule. 
So just to use that as an excuse alone uh, is a very weak excuse. And it was clearly done to buy time so that they could probably figure out, you know, what their next move is. And I think it was, you know, absolutely uh, unfortunate uh, in the town hall uh, this past uh, Thursday where the opportunity uh, did not arise to ask Joe Biden about this. Um, clearly, George Stephanopoulos had it in his purview to do. Uh, he chose not to. Um, he's obviously faced a lot of criticism for that. But this goes back to what we're trying to do, you know, as a country. It, it's, you know, look, again, we were grilled, you know, uh, infinitely over the uh, Russia interference um, investigation. Uh, you know, just, again, false narratives, misinformation, disinformation. And now what you're seeing is a complete opposite of that scenario with the Bidens. Uh, and, and to top it all off, the media is, is basically censoring uh, this information. Let the American people decide what's uh, real, what's not. They actually do a better job than the media can do. And so I think as this continues to unfold and as more facts come out, I think the American people are going to have, you know, additional information that they can use to, to make a conclusion, make their own conclusion. Yeah, have you seen anybody in the media, Rick, who is starting to realize that maybe this is really a, a very, very big story? It shows a little bit of, um, of shock about it. Have oh, you seen that? Everybody is also fearful of being perceived as to interfere in the election, right? We've talked so much about foreign uh, election interference. Uh, maybe the topic in 2020 will be domestic election interference. And it is, I mean, could not be more clear that what uh, Twitter uh, and Facebook did is tantamount to election interference. Uh, they censored valid information or it, it, look, even if it's, if it's, let's say, let's call it alleged information. They had a responsibility to allow that information to circulate into public and let the people decide. What we have now is Facebook and Twitter deciding what is news and what is not news or what is information is not information. And they've crossed the line and they've actually broken a regulation uh, with respect to the communications law in that regard, uh, which is why a number of senators have called for the heads, the CEOs, Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Jack Dorsey, to uh, go up to the Hill next week and kind of explain their actions. And as we've seen in this, just the last 48 hours from the time the event happened, you know, Jack Dorsey has completely uh, pulled a 180 uh, degree turn. And now Twitter is allowing that information. The few accounts uh, belonging to uh, some of Trump's um, uh, staff and campaign have now been unlocked. Uh, they were locked previously, you know, based on sharing this information. So there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, uh, questions revolving around this that relate to how these people dealt with the situation. And honestly, to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Right. Um, how do you think Trump has been doing the last 48 hours in terms of, I, I, don't, I, I assume that you've been watching some of his, uh, his campaign appearances, what he said to the press. I mean, um, since the Savannah Guthrie town hall, which looks like she was the town. She made most of the questions. <laughs> Goodness. Um, what, what's your reaction to how he's handled things? He's done extremely well in the last few days. Once he, I mean, look, once he, he got past, uh, you know, the COVID um, issues, I mean, he needed to get back on the campaign trail. He, he does extremely well at rallies. Uh, he draws energy from it. The people draw energy from him. Uh, it's the best way for him to communicate directly with the people. You can see he has been out every day, multiple rallies a day. And I think you're going to continue seeing that all the way through uh, Election Day. And I think that's important because it gives people confidence that, you know, he's fine, he's healthy, 
which obviously was a concern. It's not a concern. And he's going to continue doing that. And as long as he continues focusing on economics, the message has got to be economics. And we're going to get some good, solid economic data in a couple of weeks here uh, from our uh, GDP third quarter numbers. Uh, and the unemployment numbers are going to be, uh, they're suggested to be lower. So hopefully you see those. But if, if he can... In, uh, if he can reassure people, if he can build confidence in people that his vision for the economy moving forward is the best vision over the next four years, I think he's going to do extremely well. And as I've told, you know, other uh, people as well, don't pay attention to the polls. The polls are wrong. Um, you know, we, we can go into that in another time. And there's, there's uh, great examples, concrete examples with fact, proof, evidence. Uh, this is not just, you know, made up opinions. Um, he is in a much better place today at the same point than he was in 2016. And I think there is value to that. And look, I, you know, most of the Democrats I've talked to, they're not, they're not you know, saying this is gonna be a landslide by any stretch. They recognize what happened in 2016. They certainly don't wanna happen again in 2020. So they're gonna be absolutely cautious going into this. They need to squeeze every vote they can uh, out, particularly in these key battleground states, um, if Biden even has a hope of winning. Right. And the, the, again, the Trump factor, which you've mentioned before, is that people, when they're polled, when they're surveyed, a lot of times are reluctant to disclose what they really think. Because other people might give them pushback because of the fact that they actually could be in favor of voting for Donald Trump. And we saw that in 2016. We think it could even be worse now with all the polarization over Black Lives Matter and Antifa in the country. I want to ask you a quick question. Um, if somebody's at a grassroots level, at uh, neighborhood level. What is it that's especially effective from the standpoint of campaigning based on your opinion? Is there anything that you see especially that's really, really effective? Yeah, the most effective thing you can do at the grassroots level is get people out to vote. Get the fellow Republicans out to vote. Make sure that everybody has gone to the polls because this is where, you know, people, you know, maybe in Texas, for example, where it's largely a Republican state, don't see this in Wisconsin or Michigan. But, you know, in 2016, you know, Donald Trump won Wisconsin by, I think, about 10, 000, or 13,000 votes. Wisconsin, uh, uh, Michigan, it was 10,000. Votes do matter. Votes do count. And when you get at a state level, that is not a, uh, you know, a terrible uh, landslide number of votes. So you got to get out and vote. And that's the most effective they can do, especially, you know, with COVID, uh, both campaigns have had difficulties kind of doing their traditional door knocks, um, you know, getting signs out, uh, you know, other types of normal grassroots activities that's been limited because of the virus. So it's incumbent upon people in neighborhoods and in localities and precincts to make sure that their, their, their friends, their family uh, absolutely go out and vote because it is extremely critical that we get every vote out there to count. It's the only way we're going to be able to, uh, you know, that President Trump is going to be able to beat Joe Biden. Right. And finally, just a little bit of insight. You spent quite a bit of time up close and personal with President Trump. How is it that a guy in his 70s, tell us about his energy level. He's in his 70s and he's there giving a talk at a campaign rally for a couple of hours, standing up and my gosh, and what's it like? What's the energy level of Donald Trump? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, you know, he's a machine. He really is. And, and he, uh, he goes and goes and goes. And one of the things that you, you notice about him on the campaign is he, like he draws energy from the crowd, but the crowd draws, you know, energy from him. And it just, I mean, we were doing four or five rallies a day, you know, just one after the other. And it's amazing to see 
his ability to kind of harness the information specific to each of the uh, rallies that we went to. Uh, and, and look, you know, I attribute it to a lot of his uh, personal choices. Um, you know, he doesn't drink. Uh, I think that is an absolutely um, enormous factor in, in his energy levels. Um, I mean, it's funny, most people will see him at a rally, but they don't understand. He is up, you know, 5.30, you know, 5 in the morning, uh, already at work, watching news, you know, uh, uh, gleaning information. Uh, from the news channels that he can get, that he can use that day. And then he'll go way into the evening and then get up and start it all over again. So it's incredible to watch, you know, his health. And look, I think, you know, whether you agree with Mr. Uh, President Trump's policies or not, when you look at the two candidates side by side, I mean, there is no question. I mean, you, you, all you have to do is look at even one event. Or it, it, let's take the town hall from last week. Uh, even that you could see as, 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 as uh, challenging as it was um, for NBC and, and the level of questions that they just fired at the president, you could just see in his demeanor, his body language, how much more energy he had than going over to ABC with Joe Biden. I mean, there's, it's just a, it's an unbelievable contrast when you actually just look at it, the face of it. And the American people are going to see this over the next two weeks. You're going to start seeing, you know, a, a huge difference uh, in the way that the two are campaigning. Uh, I'll be curious to see if Joe Biden increases his schedule, particularly with Kamala Harris being off of the campaign trail for the moment. I think that's going to be um, a significant factor uh, for him, he's going to be able to continue this. But there's no question um, out of all of them, including, you know, Mike Pence and uh, Kamala Harris, there's no question the president probably has more energy than the other three combined. Amazing. And, and his mental acuity, tell us, anything you can tell us, Rick, about his mental acuity? Does he have really good memory? Look, he's got, he is a master at the media. He knows how to deal with the media. He knows how to interpret the media. He knows what the media is looking for. And he uses this in, in every rally and every speech that he gives. He knows that the sound bites matter. He knows how to pack, you know, a bunch of things into a small phrase uh, and have it be effective. I mean, just look at the rallies. You know, people say, well, wait a minute, why does President Trump have to do these rallies? All those voters are his anyway. And I, I kind of stand back and said, yeah, but you don't understand every media camera, every TV is watching these rallies. So they're piping that into millions of television sets and smartphones uh, across the country. So, you know, people say, oh, you know, President Trump has 20,000 at his rally. He might have 20,000 at his rally, but he probably has, you know, 20 to 30 million people tuning in watching these rallies uh, as, as he has consistently done across the board. So from, a, look, I think he's, uh, the one thing that I could say uh, that's uh, unique about 2014 to today, he has clearly learned a lot on the job. And, and that is uh, a great sign if you're wondering what he's going to do over the next four years, uh, what that means for a, another Trump presidency, uh, watching how he has just created uh, a lot of opportunities to learn more substance, uh, be involved in more issues. Um, you got to remember, this guy was never in politics. So he came to the table with a few central issues that were paramount for him and really drove why he ran for president. Now, once he's president, you have a, a, an, an infinite number of, of other issues that may have not hit the radar in the campaign, but as president of the United States matter to subsets of Americans. And so he has to be aware and, and knowledgeable about those. And I think that's, you know, one of the most uh, interesting things from the, over the last four years is how much substance he has been able to soak up and then use uh, in either campaign rallies or other events uh, or as he continues to campaign. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that over the next two weeks as well.
Great. Okay, Rick Gates, thank you so much for being on Corn Radio. Folks, remember, Wicked Game is his book. Wicked Game is an insider story on how Trump won, Mueller failed, and America lost. Thanks so much again, Rick Gates. Godspeed to you. We look forward to talking to you again in the future. Nice talking to you, Bill. Take care. Okay, Quorum Radio on now with Chaplain Gordon Klingenschmidt, also known as Dr. Chaps. Uh, he's a CPA certified, certified nursing home chaplain and also the author of the book, How to Liberate the World, A Step-by-Step Guide to Take Back Your Country. He's also a former state representative, Republican Colorado. He earned his PhD in theology, taught college for three years at Colorado Christian University, and he's a 20-year veteran, graduated the Air Force Academy. Um, Reverend, listen, it's great to have you on Quorum Radio. Uh, tell us about uh, 20 Days to Save the USA and the topic you're going to be discussing. I should mention also, parenthetically, that um, John Cummings, who's running against AOC in New York, he was also, he's also a participant in 20 Days to Save the USA. Kevin Collins, with whom I spoke this morning, um, who's a political analyst, is also participating, and a lot of other interesting people as well. What's your topic at the conference? Well, thank you, uh, Bill. It's an honor to be on your show. God bless your audience today in Jesus' name. I am honored to participate as one of 120 speakers in an online conference, uh, 20 Days to Save the USA, hosted by Jerry McLaughlin, our mutual friend who's put this all together. Uh, Our topic, I think it's going to be on Thursday night, we're going to be speaking on um, God, Trump, and the 2020 election. And my interview is with Stephen Strang, who is the founder of Charisma Magazine, uh, influential Pentecostal evangelist and uh, publisher and journalist. Uh, But he also um, wrote a book about Donald Trump and the 2020 election. Uh, And then he retitled the book, God, Trump, the Coronavirus and the 2020 Election. Um, Oh, wow. And then, uh, you know, it's it's been on the bestseller list and uh, it talks about the hope of the evangelical community and why evangelicals tend to vote for Donald Trump. Great. Well, here's what I want to do, if I could, Reverend. Reverend, I I really love your book, How to Liberate the World, A Step-by-Step Guide to Take Back Your Country. It's practical. It comes from a man who's experienced politically. You won uh, a congressional seat in Colorado, which is not famous for being a conservative state, but the contrary. Um, What can people do now at a local level? People you know, dads and moms, sons and daughters, grandparents, et cetera, young people to be able to have a positive outcome uh, on this election. What do you suggest is a really, really good tactic to be able to have a tremendous impact and to help help Donald Trump win? Well, this is not the time to be complacent. Uh, With just two weeks to go before the election, uh, is final, and, and many people have already voted by mail. I think 10 million have already voted across America now. Um, but we're just warming up in terms of get out the vote campaign. Uh, by now, probably everybody has decided who they're going to vote for. That's not going to yes. change between now and the election. What will change between now and the election is the turnout. And if people are uh, angry or, or motivated, they'll probably vote. If people are complacent or just don't care, they'll probably stay home and not vote. And it's up to us uh, who have a stake in this election, who've been activists or fighting for religious freedom or pro-life or, or the, the issues that we care about, regardless of the candidates. Uh, it's, it's incumbent on us now to call our neighbors, 
to drive the elderly to the polls if necessary, um, to you know, engage in social media uh, toward a very targeted audience, and that is people that we think are going to vote conservative but may not care as much as we do and probably won't vote unless we bring them to the polls. That's what get out the vote is. It's not about changing hearts and minds anymore. It's now about uh, literally dragging everyone kicking and streaming against their will to make them vote. Uh, of course, I'm being uh, exaggerating a little bit, but I think that's, that's the difference. Sure. Let me ask you a question about, about that. You know, obviously you don't want to fill your van with Biden supporters. How do you discreetly go about ascertaining whether somebody's on board with Trump or not? What's your technique to do those types of things? I would simply go down to the Republican headquarters in your county, and you can do that no matter where you live. Every county in America has a, a Republican Party headquarters or a Trump victory campaign headquarters, and ask them for the list. They have the data. They have the list, and they know who's probably going to vote for Trump. For Trump. Uh, the question is, can you work the phones with them? Go, if you go down and volunteer uh, they'll probably have a phone bank or they'll have a, a, an app that you can download to your own cell phone. But get in touch with your local county GOP chair and get onto the list of volunteers. If you're a volunteer, they'll give you the equipment, they'll give you the database, and, and it doesn't even have to be people you know. But if you make a thousand phone calls between now and election day off of your little phone app, which is very easy to do, uh, chances are, you know, you can, you can raise the the get out the vote turnout by maybe 20%, and that could turn the tide. In every precinct in the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton lost by two votes. In in the precincts wow. that mattered, in, in places like Michigan and uh, Wisconsin, in places like Florida, uh, this year, there are only four states that are going to decide the election. Usually there's about a dozen swing states, uh, but if you look right now, there's so many red, red, red states and so many blue, blue, blue states that the, the purple states are just down to four. It's really North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Arizona. And if, if Trump wins North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, then Trump will be reelected regardless of what happens in, uh, in the Rust Belt in the north center part of the country. Right. Okay, very important. Okay, Reverend Chap, is there anything else that comes to mind as a way to, I mean, there's a certain a aspect here of people sometimes, um, I don't know if it's, if it's a lassitude or, uh, or what, but you know, some people talk about the idea of using street signs. Are you a believer in street signs? You know, it's kind of the rally people. Does that work? Um, Street signs are useful yard signs, you know, uh, Trump Pence 2020, for example, uh, if people have never heard about the candidate. So typically street signs can be very effective in school board races, in city council races, in county commissioner races, uh, or, or state representative or even state senate races, where, you know, 80% of the voters just vote party line and they've never heard the name of the candidate. So that's why I would use yard signs if you're running for local election. Uh, for example, when I ran for city council three years ago, um, we put out about 2,000 yard signs all around the city of Colorado Springs. 
And wow. people who had never heard of me before just voted for me based on how long my last name is. Klingen Schmidt has 14 letters. And, and it's, oh, wow. it's unforgettable when you see it on a yard sign. And, and they go into the voting booth and they're like, who are all these other people? I've never heard of those other names. I'm going to vote for Klingen Schmidt. And so I got a lot of votes right. that way. Uh, just with yard signs alone, but it, all it does is increase your name recognition. For people like Donald Trump, he's already got all the name recognition he needs. Everyone knows and, and, and remembers his name, even if they never saw it on a yard sign. Sure. So then is it a good idea to put Trump and Klingenschmidt, if that's the case, if you were running, or the name of the other congressional candidate for the U.S. House seat? Is that a good idea, you think? Put both? Yeah, if people are interested in their local races, they should get to know their local candidates. And it's very easy. Uh, if you show up to GOP headquarters, you're probably going to meet your county commissioner. You're probably going to meet your city councilor or your school board members. And you should put their yard signs in front of your house to, to help them get their name recognition up a little bit. Um, but if you find good conservatives... Uh, absolutely. Get on board because what happens after they're elected? After they're elected, they're going to return your phone call. And if there's an issue that you care about more than the candidate, you have a direct line. You say, hey, you remember me. I knocked on doors to help you get elected. You better vote right and you can hold them accountable if you were on their team beforehand. Right. Sure. Because they want to make sure that you're in place for the next cycle, next election. Yes. I'll tell you, okay. you know, we're supposed to, I, I served as a state representative and uh, in theory, we're supposed to treat all citizens equally. Uh, but you know, with, when, a, when, a, when an elected person gets a thousand phone calls every day, there's only so much time they have to return the phone calls of the names they remember. Sure. Okay. Well, that's great. That's good advice. And, um, you know, I, as far as, you know, you remember back in 2012 when um, Obama was reelected, they talked about very effective programs of getting souls to the polls. What do churches, what should churches be doing? What's the angle on that? Obviously, you got to bring people to the polls, but is there anything else uh, as part of the mix, part of the formula to be able to do effective uh, work outreach at churches? Because the Democrats are doing it shamelessly in lots of black churches and lots of other places. Yeah, this is ironically one place where the Democrats have been more effective at church mobilization than the Republicans. Because the Republicans, even though they want to vote conservative, uh, even though the, the pastors are probably quietly going to vote for Donald Trump, they're afraid of getting sued or they're afraid of losing their nonprofit status if they endorse somebody like Donald Trump from the pulpit, or they're afraid of losing their tithe money from, you know, a, a, a modern, a moderate Democrat who might be in the audience is going to stop tithing to your church. That's not a reason to abandon the culture war. Uh, I think pastors need to be bold and, and fearless, and they need to stand up and endorse candidates from the pulpit, regardless of the consequences. Uh, or, There's so or, much at stake. What's at stake if they don't do that? Um, there, there is too exact. Well, I was going to say. Well, go ahead. Tell us. I, I said actually, there's too much at stake. But go ahead. Tell us what's at stake. Well, yeah. If we are quiet and if the church doesn't show up, yeah, you know, half of church attenders still don't vote. Um, Amazing. It, it's it's sad. 
But if, if the pastor was able to mobilize his entire church simply to vote without endorsing candidates, just to get a, a, a bus or a plan or a phone tree or, or get a little bit organized, at least have a nonpartisan voter registration desk in the back of the church on the way out, people can register to vote and that you don't have to endorse anybody to do that. Newly registered voters will vote probably uh, 80% more than lazy voters who registered years ago. So getting right. people That's newly, a good point. Yeah, getting, getting new people registered to vote for the first time can be a big difference because those people are going to vote if they register uh, a few weeks beforehand. So one trick I've, I've seen pastors do is, uh, you know, during the announcements or before the sermon, the pastor says, okay, everyone stand up in your seat. Everyone stand up and everyone's standing, and then the pastor says, now sit down if you've already registered to vote. And you'll see about half the congregation will sit down, and the rest of the people standing, he says, okay, you who are there, uh, we have a piece of paper for you, and we're going to pass it out now and make sure that you get registered to vote. And then, uh, you know, people, wow. will, people will get engaged if they're just confronted like that or encouraged a little bit. That's awesome. And by the way, I do think given the shameless, brazen use of, of churches in black communities, especially to help Democrat candidates. Now it's time to go for broke and forget what the IRS is going to do. Or maybe, we may not have a country in a year that will be recognizable if we don't win for Donald Trump. No, you're right. And when Obama was president, he abused the IRS and he began threatening churches. Of course, we stood our ground. Uh, but there were a lot of nonprofit groups, not churches specifically, but pro-life groups and pro-family groups who were delayed or denied their tax-exempt application status, like Dr. James Dobson, when he applied for his news 501c4, uh, Family Talk, he was denied status until uh, he had some lawyers make some headlines, and then the IRS eventually got around to it because Obama had egg on his face. But uh, yeah. Just imagine if Biden is reelected, is, is elected. Uh, the first thing they're going to do is repeal the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. They're going to homosexualize all business owners with employment quotas uh, or, or LGBT privileges to be employed at places like Masterpiece Cake Shop, where my friend Jack Phillips, the baker, uh, was harassed for his Christian faith for refusing to make a gay wedding cake. Now he's going to be forced to make a gay wedding cake if Kamala Harris's, uh, Nancy Pelosi's so-called Equality Act gets passed into law. Well, it's misnamed. It's inequality for Christians and privileges, uh, priorities for homosexuals. So uh, they're coming so after they, by us. By the way, excuse me, are they going to hit, hit, pastor, or hit uh, business owners with, with jail time if they don't? you know, comply with their demands to make a, a, you know, a gay wedding cake or do a photo reception, um, you know, for a gay wedding or do a reception for a gay couple? Is that, are they going to threatening jail, jail time, prison or what? If they don't pay their fines for most, most Christian business owners will just pay their fines and then change their policies and cave in. Uh, but uh, look at the, uh, the bake, the bakery in Oregon where Aaron and Melissa Klein, Melissa's cake shop, uh, was fined $135,000 and closed their doors forever because they wouldn't make 
uh, gay wedding cakes. Uh, so there is that we're America is going to turn into California, which is already harassing uh, and bankrupting. For example, the Boy Scouts. They changed the law so the Boy Scouts could not be a nonprofit organization in California unless they hired gay scoutmasters. Well, what did the Boy Scouts do? They hired gay scoutmasters nationwide. And now they're really going bankrupt because there are, you know, child molesting charges against old, old scout leaders that were mostly homosexual that happened to also have an affinity for molesting boys. And now the lawyers are having a field day and bankrupting the Boy Scouts, which may no longer be an organization next year. Just think of what's going to happen nationwide if Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi get rid of the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Well, when good people do nothing, evil people triumph. That's the lesson. Dr. Chaps, that's Chaplain Gordon Klingenschmidt, author of the book, How to Liberate the World, A Step-by-Step -Step Guide to Take Back Your Country. Thanks so much for your time on the show, and uh, Godspeed to you and all your endeavors, and everybody get off your behinds to make Donald Trump president again on November 3rd. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Our website is prayinjesusname.org. Sign up for our free emails or sign a petition at prayinjesusname.org.